My name is Jim Fleming, and this is Our Sunday School. Our Sunday School is part of Stewart Heights Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. To prepare for this lesson, please go to OurSundaySchool.com for a copy of today's handout. Now, let's get to this week's lesson. Well, good morning, and welcome to Our Sunday School. I'm glad you guys are with us this morning. Welcome to everybody online. Uh, we're in Mark chapter 14 today. Uh, in the second half of the handout. And before I really kind of get into the lesson, I want to say uh, we, uh, our family went on a trip last Sunday morning, uh, basically immediately after Sunday school, and we're out of town several days. So none of my normal post the YouTube, the email, the podcast, none of that got done. So I will attempt it doing t- uh, twice all of that this week. Uh, so if you missed any of last week because of that, I apologize. But we were just tired, and I said, you know what? The world will not end for me pausing a week on this, and it didn't, which was kind of cool. So there we go. But we're in Mark chapter 14, uh, and we'll start this morning with our question that we ask each week. Uh, what is God doing in you through his word from the portion of Mark we've studied so far? And um, I, I am hopeful, and I, I think I find this to be true when I think back through this series so far, that when we engage in texts that kind of bring uh, our own faultiness up very, very close, the volume of answers to this question tends to go up just a little. Uh, When we're talking about Jesus moved from this location to this location and here's the geography, maybe not quite as much, but when we look at texts like we did last week and hopefully we'll finish up this week, uh, Judas betraying Jesus Christ in this crowd that came and we kind of can see ourselves in the narrative and that we're not actually the Jesus character that um, these become a little more personal so I'll open it up to that and while you guys are thinking about the answers good morning to the Blairs uh, the Velosins, the Janikas uh, and Nancy Miller hey, good morning everybody so what is God doing in you through his word from the portion of Mark we've studied so far Now I've put all this pressure on you to have an answer, right? <laughs> oh, man. I always have an answer. I know you do. This might not be the question you're asking. Okay, well, fire away. <laughs> Michigan yeah, Michigan did win last night. That's exactly right. <laughs> and uh, I, I believe, if I've read the schedule correctly, uh, the super secret schedule that we keep in the program that dictates where everybody goes on Sunday mornings, that we have Brian this morning. So it's a lower likelihood that we will sing the Michigan fight song in the middle of the service this morning. So there's, yeah, just, just FYI. We might be able to hear it from Saudi Daisy where Gary is this morning. So, so congrats there. All right, so let's go ahead and let's uh, read the second half of Mark chapter 14. Uh, so we'll start here where Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we'll go all the way through to where Peter breaks down in Christ. So Mark chapter 14. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. 
And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And as he was sitting with the guards and warming himself with the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Mark 14. So last week, we started this uh, section, uh, the second section in the text that I read, the betrayal and arrest of Jesus. We got through the first three or four verses. Uh, and today, we'll pick up with verse 47. So... The last thing that we left with last week was Judas kisses him, 
and this troop of people that is the collection of kind of the, if you think about it, the henchmen, if you will, of the religious elite, along with some Roman soldiers, because this is going to be important in some of the other Gospels. It talks about uh, in, in more detail, because, you know, Mark is not our heavy on detail guy, right? He's going to be light on detail. We're going to get through the action. We're going to move pretty quickly. But in more detail in some of the other Gospels, and, and we're going to reference some of those this morning, um, we see a, a little more complex look at what this crowd is. And I, I think that's going to be important for the actions and the recipients of the actions in today's text, that there were also Roman guards present. So just kind of keep that in the back of your mind. So verse 47, but one of those who stood by drew his sword. So, so we're going we're gonna to play uh, flip through the Gospels for just a minute, okay? So one of those who stood by drew his sword. So d- does anybody know which person this was? Like, who is this? Peter. Peter, all right. Which Gospel is Peter named in? Let's take a look. So let's go to Matthew. Let's go to Matthew and look at Matthew um, 26 and verse 51. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. So we don't, we don't know his name there. And we know his name's not in Mark, so let's go to Luke. And this is where you would, I mean, like, Luke, we're going to find out the details, right? He's the doctor. He's going to be giving us all the stuff. Um, Luke 22, verse 50, and one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Eh, Nothing. You're like, well, then it's got to be who? John. All right, so let's, let's talk about timelines for just a second. Which one do we believe is the first gospel that was written? You ought to get this answer right. It's Mark, yes. Mark was written uh, early, mid-50s, right? So, like, <laughs> I was talking with this to, with Caleb and uh, Julie last night, and Caleb was like the... The O-50s, right? I was like, well, the O-O-50s, I think, is probably the better way to say it. Like, the, the original set of 50s. You know, this is not 19, this is a long time ago. And uh, so Mark's the first out of the gate. So the vast majority of the players that are mentioned in Mark's gospel are still alive at the time of the writing. Okay? So just keep this in your mind. So Matthew comes, Luke comes, they happen a decade maybe or so later. The players, many of them, are still alive. John's gospel is written in mid to late 90s. Vast majority of the people on the scene have passed away. Anybody who did a criminal act, it would be safe for them to be named at that point. So sometimes what we don't know in a given gospel isn't necessarily for those of us that are around 2,000 years later. It might just have been helpful for Peter to have been able to live a little bit longer. right? Because remember, we think Peter's the one narrating this to Mark. Mark's writing it down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So I, I love 
the legal cover that the Holy Spirit gives Peter here by not naming him, which is kind of cool. Because if Roman soldiers are involved and you strike, like, whoa, time, like, Rome was not known for mercy. You, you can watch Gladiator a million times. You will not come away with, you know, I think the emperors were, they were really known for their mercy. No, 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 no. It was thumbs down far more often. Uh, Peter was actually killed in the mid-60s, we think in 64 in the great uh, fire of Rome, not because he was burned, because that's when Nero did a big uh, sweeping cleanse of Christians. And, you know, it did not have the intended effect. <laughs> Uh, but Peter was crucified on a cross upside down, according to uh, church history. So all kinds of interesting things going on here. But I just want you to know that this is, this is the likely working theory as to why Peter is not mentioned here. Now, I, I don't have this gripped in both hands tight, but this seems to be pretty, pretty rational response. So verse 47, let's continue. But one of those who stood by... And this stood is a present active participle, which I think is a beautiful, it's like they're, in Mark's gospel at least, this is the last pre-crucifixion moment of loyalty that the disciples have. Like that word, like that word right there, that word stood, is the last pre-cross moment of loyalty that the disciples have. Because literally, in two verses, three verses, they're going to scatter. So it doesn't take long, but... It was their habit to stand with Jesus at that point. It's a beautiful little word, I think. So one of those who stood by drew his sword, and I, I gave you guys some homework last week. So if you remember your homework, the homework question was, who told Peter to bring a sword? Like, what? What is this about? And I gave you a text, Luke 22, verses 35 through 38. So let's, let's look through this text, Luke 22, 35 through 38, because I think it's an interesting thing that's going on here. It's worthy of note. So verse 35, and he said to them, this is Jesus speaking, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? Now this is, Luke records this conversation, and Luke says things are in order in his gospel. So Luke records this conversation right before they go to Gethsemane. So this is right after Simon Peter's betrayal has been foretold, and right before they head off to uh, the Mount of Olives. So, who told, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. So what, what's he reminding them of here? He is enough. He will provide. He will take care. Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. Okay? Verse 36. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. So he's quoting Psalm 88 now. A couple different verses in Psalm 88. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Now, this little phrase, it is enough, is one of the wonkiest, weirdest, most difficult things to translate in all of Greek into English. There's not a real equivalent. You can translate it, enough! Like a parent to a child who is saying, no, no, that's wrong. You can translate it, it's enough. Whereas I would be communicating to Dave Barber, the volume in the room is just right. 
So the context has to tell us which way to push the word's meaning. And virtually every English translation translates it just like this, it is enough. The interesting thing is that the punctuation at the end of the sentence varies wildly. Some English translations have an exclamation point, some have a period. And I would argue that actually moves the meaning in our sarcastic culture where we look at it and go like, oh, he's being sarcastic. Maybe, maybe not. But what we don't hear, have here is an explicit no. There are other words Jesus could have used to say no, that is wrong action, that is not the correct interpretation of what I am saying. Jesus does not give them an explicit no. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna hold this in my head. So who, who didn't tell him no to bring a sword to Gethsemane? Jesus, all right? Now who knows exactly what's gonna happen in Gethsemane? Jesus, all right. Does Jesus set up his children to sin? No. So let's, let's make sure, I'm gonna, I wanna make sure we understand that is not what Jesus is doing here. What might Jesus be doing here? Fulfilling the prophecy, absolutely. And while he's doing it, he's reinforcing to Simon Peter, the sword is not the way, right? I, it breaks my heart that in the history of the capital C church, we have massive portions where the sword appeared to be the way. And it's just not, right? It's just absolutely not. So, so let's keep going. So one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. All right. I really want to like act this whole thing out and show you the different options. And the reality is all that's kind of cute, but none of it actually matters that much. So he cut off his ear, right? Now, the, in John's gospel, which ear is described? The right ear, okay? You get the name of the guy, right? So do we interact with anybody else in the high priest's household in Mark 14? The servant girl, that's exactly right. You remember the girl at the end of the story who stirs the group up outside in the courtyard and stirs them like, you, like, I know you. You were with him. Why would she have known him? Because Malchus, the guy who gets his ear cut off, has a story to tell for the rest of his life. And can you imagine how fresh that story would have been the night it actually happened? My ear was on the ground, and then it wasn't. Yeah. Yes, that's eerie. Yes, thank you, Dave. I'm getting emotional. I needed to, I needed to laugh. Thank you. So, so... Even though Mark is not the guy that we know is, is heavy on detail, he's putting enough in so that we can start to make some connections and think, things make logical sense. Right? They would have known each other. The servants in a household would have known each other. Okay. All right, so the servant and the high priest, they cut off his ear. And if you're the high priest, now I, I want to I draw two, two points here. 
I have highlighted the word singular on the handout next to the high priest. When the word is singular, we are referring to the singular high priest at any given point in that, uh, uh, any given point in history. Because there's only one high priest. There are multiple chief priests. Those two terms are not the same. When this word is plural, it's referring to the chief priests. So that you think about, like the, if you have an org chart, hey Amy, uh, the high priest would be the top of the org chart, and then you've got chief priests that oversee all different components. So, so this is talking about one specific person. And I will, I will to make an attempt for the rest of 14 and much of 15 to delineate between are we singular, or are we plural, so we know which group that we're actually talking about. So this is the high priest, we're talking about one specific household, cut off the servant's right ear. How do you think the high priest is going to respond to that? Do you think this is going to engender friendship and love and harmony and peace? No. Now, does the text say Peter sought out the servant of the high priest to cut? No, no, no. He just says he just like actually in all four of the gospels, it, it gives no it gives no inclination that there was a like I'm looking for this part like that's the. But I do want you to notice Peter didn't cut off a Roman guard's ear, right? So the group that came with Jesus would likely have brought torches or some type of a light source. The soldiers themselves would have been the most prepared of all of the people there, I mean, other than Jesus, obviously, uh, of all the people there in that setting. So they likely would have been easier to identify than just the average person who's coming along for the show. And what a show it was. I don't know if how many of you saw The Passion of the Christ, but this is one of the first scenes in that movie. And, and, and you know, it's all, it's all uh, a view of how this might have actually happened. But the piercing, high-pitched whine that the theater speakers gave when Malchus got his ears cut off, got his ear cut off, I will never forget that sound. Because I had never thought about putting myself in Malchus's position. You get your ear cut off, there's nothing that, that shapes and forms that sound. Now everything just kind of goes crazy. And you're going to get, this is not going to be a positive result. So his world instantly changed, and then it changes back when Jesus puts it back on. But does Mark's gospel talk about um, Jesus puts the ear back on? Nope, skips right over that. Is it critical to the narrative of the story? No, right? I mean, I put my Peter Jackson hat on. Are we moving the ring to Mordor? Right? Do we keep this scene? Do we not keep this scene? Well, in the extended edition, the way they decided what was in the trilogy, what was not in the trilogy, does this move this, the, the ring to Mordor? Well, it, it does. Well, then we keep this scene. That's how we decide. In the theatrical version, sorry. And this, putting the ear back on, actually doesn't move the plot forward. Uh, it shows the compassion of Jesus, but that's not the point of Mark's gospel. So, cuts off the servant of the high priest's ear, verse 48. And Jesus said to them, so these are the people that came out against him. The, the pronouns here get really fuzzy if you're not really crystal clear about who is doing the speaking and to whom. So Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber? All right, let's park on this word for a second. So somebody tell me what a robber was. 
Yeah, somebody who steals stuff, right? And what does the Roman government do to robbers? Sometimes. What else do they do? They crucify them, right? We know this from like the example of the two thieves, the two robbers beside Jesus. This is so what Rome does. Is how, so, so robbers, we look at robbery and go, you're going to get a fine, you've got to pay back, you may do some jail time, but it's not like, like it's not a crazy bad crime. Rome's view was not that. Right? This was not Rome's view. So, so robbers, like put, if you want to, sub, you know, one of the challenges of translation is being true to the original language and also helping the reader in the context that they are in make a reasonable association. So have you come out as against a rapist? Like, oh, okay. Well, that's a little stronger. That, that probably evokes the right emotional response from us as far as what kind of justice is required. But Jesus doesn't use that word. He uses the word for robber. And robber shows up once before in Mark's gospel in eleven seventeen. This is when Jesus says, you've turned my house into a den of thieves, a den of robbers. Right? And he was specifically talking to the religious elite. So this word shows up three times. Twice, he's kind of slandering the religious elite here and telling them that this is, you, are, you are behaving in a way that Rome should crucify you. But the one more time that this word shows up is in Mark 15, 27, talking about the robbers that were crucified with Jesus. So in one word, he manages to insult the religious elite and look forward to his experience on the cross. And if you, don't, if you want to come and say, like, well, he was, Jesus was like okay with his words. He was brilliant. Like, he's communicating so much that nobody was able to understand it until after the events occurred because nobody knew except Jesus right then that he was going to be crucified between two robbers. Yeah, <laughs> it's unbelievable, his communication ability here. All right, so have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? And had they? Yeah, like that was the whole point, right? This is going to seize him and, and go. So then, then Jesus, in the first part of verse 49, he really starts to call him out for not doing this, um, for not doing this in, in daylight, in public. So he says, day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching. And this teaching is a present act of participle. So we're doing this over and over and over and over every single day. This was not a, I was there for five minutes and you couldn't find me. No, no, no. He made himself publicly available in front of the crowds, in front of anybody who wanted to watch. And you did not seize me. You did not criteo me. And then the, like, I might, I might, the text says, but, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And that word for let is hina. It's the, in order that. So we're, we're explaining something. But in order that the scriptures will be fulfilled. And this word for fulfilled is the filled up fully. This is completely satisfied. We have, we have checked the box. This is it. And I, I will tell you this. In... One of the four Gospels, this phrase is not mentioned, but in two of the four Gospels, these are the last words that the 11 hear Jesus say before the cross. Which I think is a spectacular last 
phrase to leave them with. Let the scriptures be fulfilled. Let the scriptures be fulfilled. Like what's going to ring in your ear the last words somebody said to me. Now John was at the cross. So you got one of the 12 there. One of the 12 was gone. Judas has exited the scene at this point. The other 10, this was the last words that they heard Jesus say until after the resurrection. Now come. That's kind of neat. Yes, sir. You know the scribes, whenever he said the oh. scripture, oh. they sat there for a second and go, oh. oh. And maybe even thought of that specific one that would Absolutely. That Absolutely. Yeah, th- this was, um, there's a tremendous amount of communication that Jesus is doing here with all of his different target audiences. It's just, it's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. So, verse 49, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. This is what he leaves them with. And then verse 50, and they all left him and fled. That's a good question. So, obviously, it wasn't the people who came to arrest him because they were successful in their attempt, right? So, the question, Julie and I were actually talking about this last night. Is this the three, Peter, James, and John, or is this the 10, I'm sorry, the 11, I won't go through all their names, but the, the 12 disciples minus Judas, right? Uh, I would argue that this, from the context here, from the geography and the language that Mark uses when he says he went on a little further, that a little further would be, in fact, a little further, and that this garden is not a... Like, don't think about a, oh, a six-acre garden. No, 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 no. This is, like, shockingly small. It would be very difficult to have a massive group come that was fairly well lit so that you could, and, like, you're going to have a hard time pulling this off in that amount of space without people that were a little farther away being intimately aware of what was actually going on. So I, the, the text doesn't explicitly say, but I think all of this stuff points toward this is the eleven. So they fled. So this word shows up two more times in Mark's gospel. It shows up in next week's text, which the handout is on the little bench, and it's on the website. And it's one piece of paper front and back. And Julie asked me this morning, is it one piece of paper front and back because you didn't know the Greek? A2, Brute, right? Like, come on now, come on. There's a couple tricky spots, but it's not that crazy. And then the, the other time it shows up is in Mark 16, 8, which, and we will, we will discuss this significantly more later on when we get to Mark chapter 16, but I think it is at least better than even odds that this is the last verse of the original manuscript of Mark's gospel. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment uh, had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Which is a spectacularly crappy way to end a gospel. <laughs> right? I mean, this is just like, what a bummer. Okay. So in, in my mind, like the pattern of behavior that is most consistent with the disciples after the arrest of Jesus is running away. That's what it is. 
until they see him in the flesh after the resurrection. And then that, like that, like we, we, we never get another instance of them running away. Like that's how big a deal the resurrection is. Yes, ma'am. That's right. That's exactly right. He got in the foot race, right? Because he's so dang competitive all the time about everything. You're like, Peter, just breathe for me, man, okay? It's amazing. All right, so let's go to the last page in hand now, page 492. Let's take a look at our application and personalization. Um, so we'll start with one that I mentioned last week. Uh, our beliefs, the application number one, our beliefs show up in actions. Our beliefs show up in our actions. And I would, I would give you three candidates for consideration here. One would be Judas, when he believed that he could go and seize Jesus Christ. This is a, a I'm, I'm explicitly showing everybody, I don't think this guy is God. Because if I thought he was God, I wouldn't be able to take this action. Like, this would be a really lousy way to go and seize him. Um, our beliefs show up in our actions in what Jesus does. With he leaves them with these words, the scriptures will be fulfilled. Like he, that's what he's driving to. Yes, he's the savior of the world, and he is also simultaneously accomplishing every single prophecy about himself. And then candidate three for this, it would be uh, Simon Peter, who believed that the sword was the way. And he had to be reminded that, no, it is actually not. So what do we do with that? Well, I would say we should repent and believe in the gospel. Because if our beliefs show up in our actions, then I want to be as connected to the gospel as possible so that it just oozes out every time we get bumped, every time we get an opportunity to do anything else. So application number two, Jesus taught his disciples right to the end, to the, ver like the very last minute he was with them. So what do we do with that? I'd say learn from all of his words. Learn from all of his words. Yes, the Sermon on the Mount is a brilliant collection of some of the most classic, amazing, life-altering truths you will ever encounter. But to leave somebody with, let the scriptures be fulfilled, is a statement of faith. Like, you want a statement of faith, that's a great statement of faith. And then application number three, only God knows who are truly his. Because you finish this particular passage and you think all 12 are false. Judas betrays him, and we know ultimately he is not a child of God. The 11 flee, and we know ultimately they are. You're like, well, well like, what, what in the world? All right, so one of my mentors uh, told me one time, he said, you... You don't know when you meet somebody what part of their story you're in and which direction they're going in their story. You might have caught them on their worst day heading in their worst direction. You might have caught them on their best day heading in their best direction. But most times, it's some mix of all this other. This is one of the worst days for the disciples' obedience. Right? And it's the cherry on top, the finishing mark of Judas's betrayal. And yet, that didn't define their eternal state. 
what they each did with who Jesus was defines their eternal state. So what do we do with that? I would say, uh, trust God. (laughs) I am glad that my worst day and my worst direction are not immortalized in the pages of Scripture. And I would imagine that everybody that hears my voice right now would say a hearty, oh yes, me too. (laughs) Like, I would like to scrub those events from the history of the world so that there's no record of them at all. But God knows who are truly his, and Jesus is going to chase after these 11 with a passion and a vigor that will convince them, he still loves me. Like, he still loves, like, after that, he still loves me, which I think is a spectacular message. So, he's arrested. The pace has picked up. And next week's text is arguably the two weirdest verses in all of Mark's gospel. So, next week, yes, we're going to study those two verses, but we're also going to look at some Bible study methods that we should and some Bible study methods that we should not employ when the text is or is not crystal clear. And I think that actually might be the big takeaway as to why those two are included. But we'll, we'll look at a lot of different things there. All right, so that's the lesson for today. Thank you guys for being engaged. I appreciate that. Uh, you should have a weekly update on your table. So if you would, make sure your name's at the bottom of those. That'd be great. And uh, when you are finished with that, if you would pray as a group uh, over one of the sections or two of the sections or all of the sections right, uh, of prayer requests, Uh, We would love for you to then go and to worship this one who doesn't give up on his own even when they run away. So I don't know where you are in your story, if you're having the best day ever and you're headed in a good direction, or if you're having the worst day ever headed in the worst direction. But if you were his, he will not let you go. And that is, that is Dave even better than Michigan winning football last night. (laughs) Amen and amen. All right, guys. Well, thank you all for being here today. That's the lesson. And uh, those of you online, if you have any prayer requests, we'd love for you to put those in the comments as well so that we could pray for you as well. Thanks, guys. Thanks for engaging. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, YouTube channel, and weekly email. You can subscribe to all three of those at OurSundaySchool.com. Grace and peace to you.